Our sermon text this morning is Acts 4, 5 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, uh, rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can be seated. What a story. The book of Acts is full of compelling stories, and this is definitely one of my favorites. This narrative has really started back at the beginning of chapter 3 with this lame beggar, this crippled man who was healed by Peter and John, who we learn is, uh, you know, 40 years old, who has been crippled his entire life and has miraculously been healed. Uh, it's, it's a compelling story. If you have a Bible, I do want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 4. If you haven't done that already, we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. We will uh, stay through Acts until we get to chapter 8. We'll take a break for Easter, and then we will likely pick it back up unless we decide to go back to Genesis. We'll decide that within the next couple of weeks. I want to ask you a question as we start a couple questions actually so i want to invite you if you brought something to write on something to write with to go ahead and get that out if you received a liturgy guide when you came in you can write on that feel free pens or if you are more sanctified you're obviously writing with pencils um so yeah or if you you know you know or just new school you guys can just use your phones that's fine uh, but i do want you to have somewhere where you can compose some thoughts um, two questions one i don't think we're asked very often uh, we may not think about very often You may even try to recall the last time you had to give an account for this 
If you believe in Jesus, so there's a qualifier if you're in this room and you believe in Jesus, why do you believe in Jesus? Why? A question like that energizes me. It excites me because I, I like the feeling of, you know, that's a good question. Like, I know I believe in Jesus, but why do I believe in Jesus? So, in other words, what has convinced you to devote your life to him? What, what is it about Jesus? Why do you believe in him? What causes you to want to, on a day where the roads are, you know, going to be a little icy, to still come and gather to worship him? Why, why do you believe in Jesus? Here, some reasons that people might, might give to that, and maybe, maybe this is part of your answer. One answer, and this is completely valid, you don't know anything else. You don't know anything else. You believe in Jesus because you've always believed in Jesus. Maybe you can't even remember a time in your life when you didn't believe in Jesus because you were raised in a home where your parents believed in Jesus and they taught you about Jesus from a young age. And so you just feel like, man, the last time I didn't believe in Jesus, I mean, I, you know, I don't have memories of, of that time. And so maybe you just don't know anything else. That's, that, that's totally valid. Like that, that's, not, that's not a bad thing. Another, another reason you might believe in Jesus, tradition. Tradition. Your parents believed in Jesus. Your grandparents believed in Jesus. Your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents. And, you know, most of your friends, the church you grew up in, all have Jesus-believing people in them. So it's just kind of part of your culture. Faith in Jesus may be for you like a family tradition. And in some sense, that's not a bad thing. It is not a bad thing to have a legacy of Christian faith in your family. And I would encourage you to think about it that way. Like, it is your responsibility now to pass on the faith to your children. Like, that is, that is a biblical way to look at evangelism, especially in your own family. Um, obviously, there are, there are more negative aspects to that, where if, if your faith in Jesus is only about tradition, then there may be some problems there. But that is a reason people believe in Jesus, tradition. Personal experience. Um, this is easy for me to write off, uh, because I would fit more in the category of the you don't know anything else and tradition. But some people have personal experiences that they just cannot deny. They, maybe, maybe whenever they first believed in Jesus, the Spirit, they were so sensitive to the Spirit, they can recall not only the day, but the moment that they believed in Jesus. And they just cannot deny that experience. And so it compels them to, that this is real, and they believe in Jesus. There are people all over the world that have received, like, dreams. And so they've, they've had a dream that says, hey, you need to go and find a Bible or go to this specific place. And, and they, they do, and then it's all confirmed. And so they, their faith in Jesus is is met with a, a miraculous sign or there's there's people around the world who are healed in miraculous ways and so that accompanies the preaching of the gospel and they believe we see something similar happening here in the book of acts where you know five thousand men upwards of ten thousand people come to faith in jesus as they see this miraculous sign a man being healed accompanied with the preaching of the gospel it's powerful and so maybe you've had a personal experience that has just compelled you to believe in jesus but for all of us, what I hope is true is that the, one, the main reason we are believing in Jesus is because the story of Jesus, the gospel, has compelled, convicted, and convinced us that Jesus is who he said he was. Because here's the reality. Regardless of your family traditions, 
your personal experiences, or how you were raised. If Jesus is not who he said he was, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's wonderful you have a family tradition, but if your family tradition is faith in a Jesus who is a fraud, it doesn't matter. Um, But if Jesus is who he said he was, faith in Jesus comes down to dealing with the claims that Jesus made and the things that Jesus did and the things that that the apostles say that Jesus did. Belief in Jesus boils down to, is Jesus who he said he was? That's, That's what it all boils down to. Now, a second question. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, or if you know someone in your life who doesn't believe in Jesus, a good question you might want to ask them is why? Why not? Why don't you believe in Jesus? So it, just as it's fair for us to ask one another and ourselves, why do we believe in Jesus? It's, it's very fair to ask others, why don't you believe in Jesus? And there are a variety of reasons people don't believe in Jesus all around the world. First is they never heard about Jesus. That's kind of an obvious one, right? You've never heard about him. You never had the opportunity to believe in Jesus. There are people like that all over the world. Believe it or not, there are people like that who live in Tupelo who have not heard about Jesus. They don't really know much about him. Or maybe a version of Jesus that just isn't true. Um, a second reason that people don't believe in Jesus is they've never really given much thought to him. So they have heard of Jesus. They know churches exist, but they just haven't given too much serious thought to it. They've just not been concerned about religion or spirituality or God. They, maybe, maybe they're agnostic. I, I don't know. They just haven't given much thought to it. Nothing wrong with that, you know, but they just haven't given much thought to it. Another reason people don't believe in Jesus. They've had really bad or harmful or abusive experiences in the church. And whereas we tend to separate Jesus from the church, people who are abused by the church see what we should see the whole time, and it's that Jesus and the church are linked. And they end up rejecting Jesus because of the treatment they've received by the church. And so they don't believe in Jesus because they've had such a terrible, rough experience in the church, that too is understandable. Or, another one, this is, this is common, they've read the Bible. I know it sounds like wild. It's like they, they read the Bible, and then they decided they didn't want to believe in Jesus. But it's true. People will read the Bible. Uh, maybe, maybe they have been a person who wasn't considering any of this very seriously. And then they're like, you know what? I want to give this a shot. I'm going to start reading the Bible. And they're like, I don't really know where to start, but hey, let's just start on page one. Let's go to Genesis. They start reading Genesis, and they get in those first few chapters, and they're like, okay, no, I can't go there. That God created the heavens and the earth in seven days? Mm-mm. Nope, that does not work for me. I can't believe that. This is false. They keep reading. They see Genesis 6. There's a flood, and it's like, nope, nope, not good with that. They, they keep reading. You get to, we, we actually almost preached through uh, Judges. <laughs> or Joshua uh, last fall when we decided to preach through Genesis 1 through 11. And we just kind of thought about that, and we read through it, and we were like, you know, 2020's been a rough year. I don't know if we should close it out by talking about all these wars and murders and all this just chaos. I don't know that that's best. But when you get to parts like that of the Bible, it's like, man, there is a lot of bloodshed here that this God seems to condone and allow and sometimes even demand. And I just don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. 
Um, maybe they're hesitant about miracles, and they're like, okay, I have to accept that Jesus was born of a virgin. I don't know. I don't know. And so they read the Bible, and they struggle to accept certain parts of it. But all these reasons, while they're understandable, are not the best reasons for unbelief. There's actually a very good reason to not believe in Jesus. Probably didn't expect to hear that um, from the guy that's standing here with the open Bible. Um, but it's true. You see, the best reason that you could possibly have for not believing in Jesus is when you seriously consider the claims of Jesus, the story of the gospel. And if it is not compelling, if it is not convicting, if it is not convincing, then your unbelief is at least a direct rejection of who Jesus claimed to be. That's the best way you can reject Jesus, if there's a good way to do that. That's the best way. You take Jesus at face value for who he said he was, and you say, nope, I don't believe that. These other reasons are just side reasons. It's easy to go to a place in the Bible and say, I don't like that, so I'm going to not believe in Jesus. But you need to be faced with the real Jesus of history, the real Jesus of the Bible, and decide for yourself, is he who he said he was? Is he who others say he was? In Acts 4, 1 through 22, we read about this face-off between the religious authorities in Jerusalem and the apostles, Peter and John. You see, the Jesus movement, the early church, it's about to face its first obstacle. Really, throughout chapter 4 and 5, we start to see persecution ramp up in the church. But so far in the book of Acts, we have seen the church's first sermon, we have seen the church's first worship gathering, and we have seen the first miracle. But now, we are seeing the, the church's first persecution. Christianity is starting to make waves. As I said, you look at verse 4 of chapter 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Luke's really specific there. He says the number of men was at 5,000. There are some who believe that this total number was upwards of 10,000. 10,000 new converts, new believers in Jerusalem or the surrounding areas in a matter of days. The church is, is spreading like wildfire. The kingdom is wide open and it is spreading. The gospel is spreading. And now the religious establishment takes notice. And they recognize we've got a problem on our hands. And we see the apostles and the religious authorities come into this sharp conflict with one another. And on the surface, it seems like that conflict is all about this healing of this poor beggar. You know, this guy's at the center of all this controversy, and it's like he's suffered his whole life, and now he's at the center of controversy. They, they just can't, they don't know what to make of it. Their questions are related to it, but that's not why they're growing uneasy. The center of the conflict, the center of everything of Acts 4, 1 through 22 is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection. It's surprising. It seems like on the surface, all of this is about the healing of this, of this man who was crippled. But Luke helps us see that the spotlight is actually on the resurrection. 
both the religious authorities and the apostles are obsessed with the resurrection of Jesus, and it causes him to go in two very different directions. But they are both obsessed with the resurrection. For one group, the religious authorities, this obsession led to unbelief and fear and opposition and persecution. For the other group, the apostles, this, this obsession with the resurrection led to faith and boldness and obedience, even in the face of persecution. The resurrection of Jesus motivates every action in Acts chapter 4. And so what I want to show you this morning is that the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus is the hinge on which our belief in Jesus must hang. And it is the single most important factor that you must consider before you reject Jesus. So if you're, if you're receiving Jesus, I want to help you understand that your faith is built on a very solid foundation, a historical foundation. And if you are wrestling with faith in Jesus, you're not really sure, or you're, you know, you're rejecting Jesus, I want to help you see that before you do that, you have to consider this historical reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So we're going to walk through the story. I'm going to walk you back through the story. And then I want to highlight the actions of these two groups of people. First, the religious authorities, and second, the apostles. So what we're going to see is that first, the religious authorities rejected Jesus. All right, so that's what we see. They're rejecting Jesus because they could not accept the resurrection. That's why. They are rejecting Jesus because they could not accept the resurrection. And then second, we're going to see that the apostles received Jesus, and they lived for him, they sacrificed for him, because they could not deny the resurrection. The resurrection is at the center, and it causes these groups to head in two opposite directions. Okay, so let's, let's start walking through this. First, the religious authorities rejected Jesus because they could not accept the resurrection. All right, so in case you think I'm crazy, emphasizing resurrection, let's start back in verse 1 of chapter 4. So verse 1 of chapter 4, if you have a Bible, look down with me. Here's what we read. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. We'll stop right there. Okay, so if you remember, at the beginning of chapter 3, Avery preached on it last week, uh, Peter and John, they come upon this, this beggar who is crippled. He's been crippled his entire life. He's outside the temple, and he they believe that they can help him. And so they heal this man in the name of Jesus. And so this man who has been crippled his entire life is healed by Peter and John. And then Peter, uh, this is just, Peter's a preacher, okay? This is what preachers do. Anytime there's an opportunity to preach, they preach, okay? So this happens, and then Peter immediately enters into a sermon. And so he starts preaching about Jesus. And he's right outside the temple, and he's preaching about Jesus. And uh, that goes all the way through the rest of chapter 3 from verse 11 all the way down to verse 26. And then as soon as you get into chapter 4, there's this interruption. This, this interruption, okay? You have all of these religious authorities. You've got the, the captain of the temple. You've got the Sadducees, and they're coming in to put a stop to this preaching of Peter. And so I don't know if, if they literally just interrupted the sermon or if the sermon ended and they were just kind of chatting with each other. Either way, they interrupt what's going on, and we find out why in verse 2. So, okay, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, and then verse 2, greatly annoyed. I just, I love that so much. It's like, you know, they weren't furious, they weren't angry. It's just, it sounds so petty. It's like, they were just so annoyed, 
you know, like it was annoying what they were doing. Like, I mean, I just, I don't know, you just don't expect that to, to find that there. Um, but yeah, they were greatly annoyed because, why? They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, you know, we could get into the Sadducees um, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were another group in Judaism that believed in future resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees didn't want to be anything like the Pharisees, and so they did not believe in a future resurrection. So we do kind of have that. But, you see, the bigger thing is, at this time in the life of Israel, there was a guy who lived and who was a rabbi and who was teaching. And then uh, he was crucified, and then all of his followers were now saying that he rose from the dead. That's the key issue here. They were, they were greatly annoyed because not only did they heal this man, but on the heels of it, they're saying, the reason this man was healed is because the guy who lived and died and rose again, that's the guy who healed him. And, and so it, it annoyed them. If you keep going, um, their annoyance led them to take Peter and John, arrest them, put them in custody, and this sounds worse than it is. They really just wanted to question them. They, they wanted to bring them in to before the Sanhedrin, which is this big council that had about 70 members in it. And they wanted, included the high priest, a former high priest, a very serious thing. But they wanted to question Peter and John. And so I imagine the arrest was just like an opportunity, first of all, for everyone to rest, but especially Peter and John, almost like, a, okay, you guys need to cool your jets. Um, you're losing your minds. Maybe sober up a little bit, go spend some time in, in this cell, and we'll talk about this in the morning. Um, morning comes, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Anas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. This is just Luke's way of saying all the big wigs were in the room. This, this council chamber was full of anyone in Jewish life that had any level of authority. And they come in, and in verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired. And this question is so interesting to me. Luke lets us in on the secret that the Sadducees, all the religious authorities, what they're really upset about, what they're mainly upset about deep down is that they are preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not cool. And they're upset about it. They bring them in. They arrest them. They want to bring them in the next day for questioning. And so what do you expect? You expect them to question them on the basis of Jesus' resurrection. Why are you teaching that Jesus rose from the dead? That would be a great first question if you were annoyed that they were teaching it. You know, you could say, listen, you guys are fishermen. You guys are laymen. You have not studied the way we have studied. You have not been trained the way we have been trained. You're uneducated. You don't understand what you're talking about. There is no resurrection from the dead. Quit talking about it. That's not what they do. Look. Look at their question in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? When I read that, I almost can feel the tension. You can almost feel the fear in, in this chamber of religious leaders. They're scared to death because they think they're going to say Jesus. And they don't want them to say Jesus. That's the last thing they want to hear. And so they ask this question, like, hey, we're genuinely wondering. Like, at this point, these religious leaders, they are hoping and praying that these men say, well, actually, we were possessed by demons. 
you know. Um, it was a demonic possession, and so we, you know, we kind of went out and we started healing and doing all this crazy stuff. Like, yeah, that's what it was. And then, you know, the religious authorities were like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> thank, thank goodness you, you had a demon. It wasn't, I was really afraid you were going to say Jesus because you keep preaching that he was raised from the dead. You healed in his name. We're kind of worried about this. Why are they so worried about this? The religious authorities rejected Jesus because they could not accept the resurrection. You remember, they were upset that they're preaching the resurrection. They questioned them about the healing. They are so worried. Why? That word they used. By what power? By what name did you do this? They, they are rejecting the resurrection because for them to maintain power in Jerusalem, the resurrection can't be true. It can't be true. Their livelihoods depend on Jesus being dead and in a tomb somewhere. They don't know where he is. They can't counter the argument here. You notice that as well. They don't, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do, but he can't be alive. This can't, this, these, these teachings of these apostles can't be true because they need to maintain power. You see, a resurrected Jesus threatened their political and social power. It was a major problem that these early Christians now had a king in Jesus that they submitted to even before Caesar, let alone these Jewish authorities. A resurrected Jesus threatened their religious and moral power and authority. You see, this was a monumental moment for these Jewish leaders who were trained in the Torah. If salvation is found only in Jesus, they're essentially out of business. 10,000 people now, overnight, are no longer looking to these Jewish authorities for spiritual guidance or wisdom. They're not doing it. And I know it's, it's probably difficult to relate to a Sanhedrin, you know, Jewish religious authorities in the first century. It's, it's kind of tough for us to say, oh, I know exactly how they were feeling, you know. Um, but I think we might. We don't like to give up power and authority and autonomy over our own lives. And the, resur the resurrection of Jesus challenges us in that. If Jesus literally lived, died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, has all power on heaven and on earth, game over. It's his way, not mine. We have to submit to him. We have to yield our lives completely and fully to him. And that's what faith in Jesus leads to. Believing in Jesus means submitting your life wholly unto Jesus. It means yielding to his ways. It means giving up the power and the right to dictate what we think is best for our lives. And instead, submitting to what he says is best for our lives. Like I said, if Jesus is raised from the dead, then he was who he said he was, which means we have to take everything he said seriously. We don't have the option to just ignore him. We're like these religious authorities in that we want to maintain power. But it wasn't just power that they wanted to maintain. All right, so notice, verse 8. Notice how Peter responds. They're rejecting Jesus because they can't accept the resurrection because they want to maintain power, but also because of their pride. Look at this. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. Very respectful way to start this before I have a very sarcastic comment. Okay, you ready? Um, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, like you can almost see him, like, you know, his head moving as he says that, you know? 
oh, if you guys are going to be upset with us because we healed a guy, then fine, I'll answer your, your condescending question. Um, but so here we go. Sorry, we'll get through it. Um, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? And this is where they drive a knife through the pride of these, of these religious leaders. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, Christ meaning Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now, you remember, before we get to the next part, you remember before Peter said the same thing to the crowds that he was preaching to, and we kind of made the comment like, you know, some of those people may have been there, some of them may not have been there. These people who he's addressing, they were there. They were the ones who recommended crucifixion and put pressure on Pilate to actually crucify Jesus. So when he says the ones that you crucified, that is 100% correct. These men that he is talking to, they actually had a hand, an active hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so he says, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him. This man is standing before you well. And then Peter gives a short little sermonette. He whips out his Bible, he turns to Psalm 118, and he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone or the capstone, depending on how you want to translate that. And then he says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The pride of the religious authorities would not allow them to accept the resurrection of Jesus. They had to reject the, the, the concept that Jesus could be alive because that means they would have to admit something they are unwilling to admit. That they got it wrong. That they were wrong about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. And these men, more than anybody else, should have seen it. They should have noticed it. But they didn't. They missed it. And they had a hand in his death. So through the resurrection, Jesus proved himself to be the Messiah that he claimed to be. You see, you, you see the metaphor here, the, the, the way that he draws on Psalm 118 about the builders. The builders, they rejected this stone, they cast this stone off. Maybe it was deformed or malformed and it just didn't look like it had any use. And the picture is that after the, the building is, is erected at the top, there's the capstone. And it's like, oh, this stone that we threw away is actually the one who, that fits perfectly here. Or if it's cornerstone, it, you know, the, the, the same point is made that Jesus, through his resurrection, proved that he is the one, the only one who can reconcile us to God. He is the Messiah, and it only happens through his resurrection. The religious authorities put Jesus to death. They cast off that stone, but then God raised him from the dead. That stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone or the capstone. Their pride would not allow them to accept this, this juxtaposition you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. In order to be on this side of that divide, they would have to admit and confess, yes, we crucified Jesus, we were wrong about him. And their pride wouldn't let them do it. We are the same way. Faith in Jesus is not just being convinced of facts. It's recognizing 
hey, we've been wrong. We've gotten it wrong. We've been wrong about Jesus. He's not just, a, you know, an impressive spiritual leader. He's not just a really compelling teacher. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And I'm going to submit myself fully to him. I'm turning from my sin and I'm trusting in Jesus. And in order to do that, we have to admit that we are wrong. And we hate admitting that we are wrong. In the same way that pride got in the way of the religious authorities, it gets in our way as well. But their pride would not allow them to accept the resurrection and see the connection. If you can't accept the resurrection, you can't accept Jesus. So they reject the resurrection. They reject Jesus. Now, what did, this or what did this rejection cause them to do? Well, we see two things happen here. The first one is they resist the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Have you notice this? Look at verse 13. All right, so they, they ask Peter and John to leave, and they've got to they work some things out. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John perceived, they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. They recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed, listen to this, this is so, it's so sad to me. Seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Why are they wanting to say something in opposition? You know, why can't they just accept this glorious deed that has been done and praise the Lord for it, just like everyone else in Jerusalem? They can't. It says in verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. And that is so sad to me. The kingdom of God is breaking out right before their eyes, and they cannot see it. They're over here arguing and squabbling about what they should do with Peter and John. And they're missing the kingdom unfolding right in front of them. We do the exact same thing. We get so distracted by so many other things happening in our lives. And, and we'll even complain about things that are happening. And the kingdom is unfolding right in front of our eyes. People are being baptized. People's lives are being changed. People are being sanctified. The Lord is moving in incredible ways, and we don't see it. All these guys had to do was say, you know what? I don't fully understand this. I don't think we were wrong about Jesus, but clearly something's happening. We can't deny the fact that this guy who had been crippled his entire life is now walking around. He has been healed hey, let's figure it out later and just praise God in the moment. Let's praise God for what is happening here. But they can't do it. Their pride wouldn't let them. They're resisting the inbreaking of the kingdom of God because in order for them to see it and praise God for it, you know what they have to do? They connect the dots in their head. Maybe Jesus really is alive. Maybe he really is raised from the dead. Maybe we were wrong. Okay, and the second thing they do is they oppose the church. They oppose the movement of the church. You notice what they say. It's like, hey, people are praising the Lord, and this man is obviously healed. We can't deny it. We can't deny a miracle happened here, but we have to stop this thing from spreading. Their power was at stake. Their pride was at stake, and they wanted the church to stop, and so they ordered the apostles to stop teaching about Jesus, and now, finally, we'll wrap it up. We get to the apostles. The apostles. They weren't rejecting Jesus. They were receiving Jesus. They were living for Jesus. They were boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus because they could not deny the resurrection. The apostles received Jesus because they could not deny the resurrection. If you are going to receive Jesus today, if you have received Jesus, I want you to do it on that basis, that you cannot deny the resurrection. 
and it's just it's just too compelling but why why did they receive the resurrection why did they receive jesus seemingly so easily actually luke tells us that it came from the religious authorities their observation look at verse 13 now when they saw the boldness of peter and john and perceived that they were uneducated common men they were astonished they could not believe guys that these ordinary uneducated men could speak with such authority about the things of God but they noticed something they had a different kind of authority at the end of verse 13 they recognized that these men had been with Jesus I want you to think about how powerful this would be if if you were doing life with a guy who was a really good teacher, was doing a lot of miraculous things, and you were following him around. You're, you know, late teens, maybe early 20s, and you're following this guy around. And you start to kind of pick up, man, based on the stuff this guy's saying, he actually might be the savior of the whole dang world, man. And, and you follow him around, and it seems to be true. And then that guy is put to death. And you're like, well, I guess not. And then you go home, and you go to bed. And you wake up, and you go the next day, and then you go to bed. And then you wake up the next day, and you look around and he's back alive again so you're with a guy while he was alive you saw him die you saw him be buried in a tomb and then you're sitting at a table and you're having lunch with him one day that will change a person okay that will change you these men believed wholeheartedly in Jesus because they saw him after he was raised from the dead with their own eyes they had been with jesus this wasn't a theoretical argument for them they had been with jesus when he was alive saw him die and now we're with him again and that changes them their their education is irrelevant this isn't a theological position for them they have been changed the resurrection changes people how did it change them what are they doing now these cowardly men are now believing in the power of jesus's name okay Jesus is raised from the dead, which means that he has the power to heal men and women who are sick, and they believe this, and so they heal this man in the name of Jesus. What else did they do? They believed in the exclusivity of Jesus' name, that you can't be saved by anyone else. You can't be saved by anything else. It's only Jesus. Why did they believe that? Because they were with a guy who rose from the dead. They saw him ascend into heaven. He is the one who has all power and authority. He is the one who can reconcile men to God, and he's the only one who can do it. And then finally, they bravely witness to Jesus. They are content with living on mission no matter the consequences. You notice what they do? Look at verse 18. So after the religious leaders call them in, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Check out this response. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What an attitude for us to have, church. Why do you witness to Jesus? Why do you tell other people about him? Why are you content to live on mission no matter the consequences? Because Jesus is alive. It casts out all fear. It casts out all timidity. It's this can't stop, won't stop version of evangelism. I can't. I I love what they say. It's not that I just won't stop telling others about Jesus. I can't stop. 
I can't stop because of who he is and what he has called me to do. So, two questions as we close. First, have you reckoned with the resurrection? Have have you seriously considered it? Have you dealt with it? I wouldn't go anywhere else in the Bible until until you deal with the resurrection of Jesus. Ask questions. I'd love to answer any questions you have about Jesus and and his life, death, and resurrection. Because if you're able to accept that Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. And if you are going to reject that Jesus rose from the dead, reject all of it. Okay, if you're a believer today, I'm going to ask you, are you living like you believe Jesus is alive? That's why the apostles did what they did. They had been with Jesus, and his resurrection changed them. They no longer lived with fear. They no, they no longer feared not even this, this impressive, daunting Sanhedrin. They didn't, they didn't fear anything because they knew that even if these men took their lives, they, they would one day be raised and have new bodies in the same way that Jesus was. So I would ask you, live your life like you believe Jesus is alive.